Section 3 of the Turkish Embassy Letters. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Matea Bracic. The Turkish Embassy Letters by Lady Mary Wortley Montagu. Letter 7. Adrianople, April 1st, OS 1717. You see that I am very exact in keeping the promise you engaged me to make. I know not, however, whether your curiosity will be satisfied with the accounts I shall give you, though I can assure you the desire I have to oblige you to the utmost of my power has made me very diligent in my inquiries and observations. It is certain we have but very imperfect accounts of the manners and religion of these people, this part of the world being seldom visited but by merchants who mind little but their own affairs, or travellers who make too short a stay to be able to report anything exactly of their own knowledge. The Turks are too proud to converse familiarly with merchants who can only pick up some confused informations which are generally false, and can give no better account of the ways here than a French refugee lodging in a garret in Greek Street could write of the court of England. The journey we have made from Belgrade hither cannot possibly be passed by any out of a public character. The desert woods of Serbia are the common refuge of thieves who rob fifty in a company, so that we had need for all our guards to secure us. And the villages are so poor that only force could extort from them necessary provisions. Indeed, the Janissaries had no mercy on their poverty, killing all the poultry and sheep they could find, without asking to whom they belonged, while the wretched owners durst not put in their claim for fear of being beaten. Lambs just fallen, geese and turkeys big with egg, all massacred without distinction. I fancied I heard the complaints of Melibius for the hope of his flock. When the pashas travel, it is yet worse. These oppressors are not content with eating all that is to be eaten belonging to the peasants. After they have crammed themselves and their numerous retinue, they have the impudence to exact what they call teeth-money, a contribution for the use of their teeth, worn with doing them the honour of devouring their meat. This is literally and exactly true, however extravagant it may seem, and such is the natural corruption of a military government, their religion not allowing of this barbarity any more than ours does. I had the advantage of lodging three weeks at Belgrade with a principal effendi, that is to say, a scholar. This set of men are equally capable of preferments in the law or the church, these two sciences being cast into one, and a lawyer and a priest being the same word in the Turkish language. They are the only men really considerable in the empire. All the profitable employments and church revenues are in their hands. The Grand Signor, though general heir to his people, never presumes to touch their lands or money, which go in an uninterrupted succession to their children. It is true they lose this privilege by accepting a place at court or the title of Pasha, but there are few examples of such fools among them. You may easily judge of the power of these men who have engrossed all the learning and almost all the wealth of the empire. They are the real authors though the soldiers are the actors, of revolutions. They depose the late Sultan Mustafa, and their power is so well known that it is the emperor's interest to flatter them. 
This is a long digression. I was going to tell you that an intimate daily conversation with the offending Ahmed Bey gave me an opportunity of knowing their religion and morals in a more particular manner than perhaps any Christian ever did. I explained to him the difference between the religion of England and Rome, and he was pleased to hear there were Christians that did not worship images or adore the Virgin Mary. The ridicule of transubstantiation appeared very strong to him. Upon comparing our creeds together, I am convinced that if our friend Doctor had free liberty of preaching here, it would be very easy to persuade the generality to Christianity, whose notions are very little different from his. Mr. Whiston would make a very good apostle here. I don't doubt but his zeal will be much fired if you communicate this account to him, but tell him he must first have the gift of tongues before he can possibly be of any use. Mohammedism is divided into as many sects as Christianity, and the first institution is much neglected and obscured by interpretations. I cannot here forbear reflecting on the natural inclination of mankind to make mysteries and novelties. The Zaidi, Kudi, Jabari, etc., put me in mind of the Catholics, Lutherans, and Calvinists, and are equally zealous against one another. But the most prevailing opinion, if you search into the secret of the Effendis, is plain deism. This is indeed kept from the people, who are amused with a thousand different notions, according to the different interests of their preachers. There are very few among them, Ahmed Bey denied there were any, so absurd as to set up for wit by declaring they believe no god at all. And Sir Paul Ryko is mistaken, as he commonly is, in calling the sect Muterin, i.e. the secret with us, atheists, they being deists, whose impiety consists of making a jest of their prophet. Ahmed Bey did not own to me that he was of this opinion, but made no scruple of deviating from some part of Mohammed's law by drinking wine with the same freedom we did. When I asked him how he came to allow himself that liberty, he made answer that all the creatures of God are good, and designed for the use of man, however that the prohibition of wine was a very wise maxim, and meant for the common people, being the source of all disorders among them, but that the prophet never designed to confine those that knew how to use it with moderation. Nevertheless, he said that scandal ought to be avoided, and that he never drank it in public. This is the general way of thinking among them, and very few forbear drinking wine that are able to afford it. He assured me that if I understood Arabic, I should be very well pleased with reading the Al-Quran, which is so far from the nonsense we charge it with, that it is the purest morality, delivered in the very best language. I have since heard impartial Christians speak of it in the same manner, and I don't doubt but that all our translations are from copies got from the Greek priests who would not fail to falsify it with the extremity of malice. No body of men were ever more ignorant or more corrupt, yet they differ so little from the Romish church that, I confess, nothing gives me a greater abhorrence of the cruelty of your clergy than the barbarous persecution of them whenever they have been their masters, for no other reason than their not acknowledging the Pope. The descending in that one article has got them the titles of heretics and schismatics, and, what is worse, the same treatment. 
I found at Philippopolis a sect of Christians that call themselves Paulines. They show an old church where, they say, St. Paul preached, and he is their favourite saint, after the manner that St. Peter is at Rome. Neither do they forget to give him the same preference over the rest of the apostles. But of all the religions I have seen, that of the Arnaouts seems to me the most particular. They are natives of Arnautlik, the ancient Macedonia, and still retain the courage and hardiness, though they have lost the name of Macedonians, being the best militia in the Turkish Empire, and the only check upon the Janissaries. They are foot soldiers. We had a guard of them, relieved in every considerable town we passed. They are all clothed and armed at their own expense, dressed in clean white coarse cloth, carrying guns of a prodigious length, which they run with upon their shoulders, as if they did not feel the weight of them, the leader singing a sort of rude tune, not unpleasant, and the rest making up the chorus. These people, living between Christians and Mohammedans, and not being skilled in controversy, declare that they are utterly unable to judge which religion is best. But, to be certain of not entirely rejecting the truth, they very prudently follow both. They go to the mosque on Friday, and to the church on Sunday, saying for their excuse that, at the day of judgment, they are sure of protection from the true prophet. But which that is, they are not able to determine in this world. I believe there is no other race of mankind who have so modest an opinion of their own capacity. These are remarks I have made on the diversity of religions I have seen. I don't ask your pardon for the liberty I have taken in speaking of the Roman. I know you equally condemn the quackery of all the churches as much as you revere the sacred truths in which we both agree. You will expect I should say something to you of the antiquities of this country, but there are few remains of ancient Greece. We passed near the piece of an arch which is commonly called Trajan's Gate, from a supposition that he made it to shut up the passage over the mountains between Sophia and Philippopolis. But I rather believe it the remains of some triumphal arch, though I could not see any inscription. For if that passage had been shut up, there are many others that would serve for the march of an army. And, notwithstanding the story of Baldwin Earl of Flanders being overthrown in these straits, after he won Constantinople, I don't fancy the Germans would find themselves stopped by them at this day. It is true the road is now made, with great industry, as commodious as possible for the march of the Turkish army. There is not one ditch or puddle between this place and Belgrade that has not a large strong bridge of planks built over it. But the precipices are not so terrible as I had heard them represented. At these mountains we lay at the little village Kiskoi, wholly inhabited by Christians, as all the peasants of Bulgaria are. Their houses are nothing but little huts, raised of dirt baked in the sun, and they leave them and fly into the mountains, some months before the march of the Turkish army, who would else entirely ruin them by driving away their whole flocks. This precaution secures them a sort of plenty. For such vast tracts of land lying in common, they have the liberty of sowing what they please, and are generally very industrious husbandmen. I drank here several sorts of delicious wine. The women dress themselves in a great variety of coloured glass beads, and are not ugly, but of a tawny complexion. 
i have now told you all that is worth telling you and perhaps more relating to my journey when i am at constantinople i'll try to pick up some curiosities and then you shall hear from me again letter eight adrianople april first o s seventeen seventy i wish dear sister that you were as regular in letting me know what passes on your side of the globe as i am careful in endeavouring to amuse you by the account of all i see here that i think worth your notice you content yourself with telling me over and over that the town is very dull it may possibly be dull to you when every day does not present you with something new but for me that am in areas at least two months news all that seems very stale with you would be very fresh and sweet here pray let me into more particulars and i will try to awaken your gratitude by giving you a full and true relation of the novelties of this place none of which would surprise you more than the sight of my person as i am now in my turkish habit though i believe you would be of my opinion that tis admirably becoming i intend to send you my picture in the meantime accept of it here the first part of my dress is a pair of drawers very full that reach to my shoes and conceal the legs more modestly than your petticoats they are of a thin rose-coloured damask brocaded with silver flowers my shoes are of white kid leather embroidered with gold over this hangs my smock of a fine white silk gauze edged with embroidery this smock has wide sleeves hanging halfway down the arm and is closed at the neck with a diamond button but the shape and colour of the bosom are very well to be distinguished through it the antery is a waistcoat made close to the shape of white and gold damask with very long sleeves falling back and fringed with deep gold fringe and should have diamond or pearl buttons my caftan of the same stuff with my drawers is a robe exactly fitted to my shape and reaching to my feet with very long straight falling sleeves over this is my girdle of about four fingers broad which all that can afford it have entirely of diamonds or other precious stones those who will not be at that expense have it of exquisite embroidery on satin but it must be fastened before with a clasp of diamonds the curdy is a loose robe they throw off or put on according to the weather being of a rich brocade mine is green and gold either lined with ermine or sables the sleeves reach very little below the shoulders the headdress is composed of a cap called talpok which is in winter of fine velvet embroidered with pearls or diamonds and in summer of a light shining silver stuff this is fixed on one side of the head hanging a little way down with a gold tassel and bound on either with a circle of diamonds as i have seen several or a rich embroidered handkerchief on the other side of the head the hair is laid flat and here the ladies are at liberty to show their fancies some putting flowers other a plume of heron's feathers and in short what they please but the most general fashion is a large bouquet of jewels made like natural flowers that is the buds of pearl the roses of different coloured rubies the jasmines of diamonds the jonquils of topazes etc so well set and enamelled tis hard to imagine anything of that kind so beautiful 
the hair hangs at its full length behind divided into tresses braided with pearl or ribbon which is always in great quantity i never saw in my life so many fine heads of hair in one lady's i have counted a hundred and ten of the tresses all natural but it must be owned that every kind of beauty is more common here than with us tis surprising to see a young woman that is not very handsome they have naturally the most beautiful complexion in the world and generally large black eyes i can assure you with great truth that the court of england though i believe it is the fairest in christendom does not contain so many beauties as there are under our protection here they generally shape their eyebrows and both greeks and turks have a custom of putting round their eyes a black tincture that at a distance or by candlelight adds very much to the blackness of them i fancy many of our ladies would be overjoyed to know this secret but tis too visible by day they dye their nails a rose colour but i own i cannot enough accustom myself to this fashion to find any beauty in it as to their morality or good conduct i can say like harlequin that tis just as it is with you and the turkish ladies don't commit one sin the less for not being christians now that i am a little acquainted with their ways i cannot forbear admiring either the exemplary discretion or extreme stupidity of all the writers that have given accounts of them tis very easy to see they have in reality more liberty than we have no woman of what rank soever is permitted to go into the streets without two merlins one that covers her face all but her eyes and another that hides the whole dress of her head and hangs halfway down her back their shapes are also wholly concealed by a thing they called a ferrigy which no woman of any sort appears without this has straight sleeves that reach to their finger ends and it laps all around them not unlike a riding hood in winter tis of cloth and in summer of plain stuff or silk you may guess then how effectually this disguises them so that there is no distinguishing the great lady from her slave tis impossible for the most jealous husband to know his wife when he meets her and no man dare touch or follow a woman in the street this perpetual masquerade gives them entire liberty of following their inclinations without danger of discovery the most usual method of intrigue is to send an appointment to the lover to meet the lady at a jew's shop which are as notoriously convenient as our indian houses and yet even those who don't make use of them do not scruple to go to buy pennyworths and tumble over rich goods which are chiefly to be found among that sort of people the great ladies seldom let their gallants know who they are and tis so difficult to find it out that they can very seldom guess at her name whom they have corresponded with for above half a year together you may easily imagine the number of faithful wives very small in a country where they have nothing to fear from a lover's indiscretion since we see so many have the courage to expose themselves to that in this world and all the threatened punishment of the next which is never preached to the turkish damsels neither have they much to apprehend from the resentment of their husbands those ladies that are rich having all their money in their own hands upon the whole i look upon the turkish women as the only free people in the empire the very divan pays respect to them 
and the grand seignior himself, when a pasha is executed, never violates the privileges of the harem or women's apartment, which remains unsearched and entire to the widow. They are queens of their slaves, whom the husband has no permission to so much as to look upon, except it be an old woman or two that his lady chooses. Tis true their law permits them four wives, but there is no instance of a man of quality that makes use of this liberty, or of a woman of rank that would suffer it. End of section 3